in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. The heading on that particular page will say the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews. I want, if God will bless me this morning, to begin a study in depth of this book of the Bible. Anytime you say that their one book is superior to others, you're going to be questioned as to how you measure that superiority. But there are some books that shed light on the other books without which the other books would hold no value to you. That is true of the book of Hebrews. There are certain books of the Bible that contain an, a form of argumentation that is superior to others that are simply relating historical facts. That is true of the book of Hebrews. Jesus Christ is the substance, the foundation, the end, the hope, the all in all of our religion. And there is no book in the Bible that has as its all in all the person and glory, superiority, and preeminence of Jesus Christ like the book of Hebrews does. I therefore say it is the supreme book that ought to get our attention as far as studying the person of Jesus Christ. It is the manual of how to understand the Bible. It is the manual of our salvation in Christ. You might say, but the book of Romans is a book of Bible doctrine. Not so clear, not so powerful as the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is the most beautiful book of the Bible in its eloquence at setting forth the glory of Christ, which is the consuming desire of the Apostle, from verse 1 of chapter 1 to the last verse of chapter 13. Jesus Christ is being set forth in all of the Spirit of God's and Paul's persuasive ability. And it's a wonderful book. This morning, we shall do no more than introduce the book of Hebrews which will give all of you a week to begin reading the book of Hebrews so that when we come together in the following Sundays, you will be familiar with this book so that we can refer to it and you'll know what I'm referring to. This morning, all I want to do is take an overview of it, look at its context, look at who wrote it, look at to whom it's written and why it was written so that you can get an overall picture of the great book of Hebrews. You can read the book of Hebrews a hundred times, read it a thousand times, and it will still speak beautiful things to you the one thousandth and first time when you read it. And you will see glory in it that you had not seen all the previous times you went through it. It is a fabulous book. The logic and force of Paul's argument in this book is unsurpassable. How many times have I appealed to the book of Hebrews to bring pressure to bear on all of you relative to our obedience to Jesus Christ under the New Testament? It all comes from the book of Hebrews where the greatest arguments are made to preserve the people to whom Paul was writing from apostasy, to which they were greatly tempted, as we shall see this morning. Let me read just the first three verses to show you the beauty of this book. There is no beginning like Paul 
an apostle of Jesus Christ, and Silvanus, and Timotheus, unto the brethren and churches of God which are in Galatia. There's no introduction like that. You don't worry about Paul. You don't worry about Silvanus. You don't worry about Timotheus. It begins, God. I love that. God. God. No one else. No churches. God. Who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. You cannot imagine more eloquent words than the first three verses of the book. And these first three verses are just to whet your appetite for what comes after. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners The power, the eloquence of this book is beautiful to behold. And I want all of you to leave today and face this week loving the book of Hebrews and wanting to read it, maybe once, maybe seven times, once a day for this next week to saturate your mind with this book. It has 13 chapters. You can read two chapters a day and take care of it in a week very easily. One sister asked me on Friday evening what I was going to preach on on Sunday, and I said, Hebrews. And she read the book of Hebrews in the last 36 hours. I commend that. Let's be familiar with the Word of God. We're supposedly Christians. This is the book of Christianity like no other book in the Bible. We say we're Bible believers. This is the Word of God. Do you want to understand it better? Let's learn the book of Hebrews together. God. I love the way that book starts. There's no Paul, there's no apostle, there's nothing but God. And then quickly, of God's dealings through Jesus Christ, who presently is set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He just doesn't say the right hand of God, but he uses eloquent terms, like the majesty on high, instead of the word God. Let's first inquire into whom, to whom, the book of Hebrews is written. You have over this book the word Hebrews. Paul did not write a letter, and I'll prove that it's Paul momentarily. Paul did not write a letter, and then on his word processor in capital letters, in bold type, write Hebrews. He wrote a letter that said God. Hebrews. And the words, the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews, have been added by scribes to our Bibles, as they have in most of the books of the Bible. We have the title Hebrews, so we may assume from that that it's written to the Hebrews, but let's prove it from the book itself. Verse chapter 1 and verse 1 tells us plainly that it is written to the Jews. 
God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us. Connecting the us with those to whom the prophets had been given to reveal God's revelation. Jews, because there was only one nation to whom God had revealed himself plainly through the prophets, and that was the Israelite nation, or the Jewish nation, the nation of the Hebrews. Hebrew is a word taken from the great-grandfather of Abraham, whose name was Eber. You can go read about him at the Tower of Babel. When God confounded the languages, there was a man there named Eber, who was the grandfather of Abraham. And guess what language he ended up with? Hebrew, which is Hebrew language from Eber. And Abraham was one of his descendants and spoke Hebrew. And Abraham was called the Hebrew in the book of Genesis, chapter 15. I believe it is. And so we have coming down through us the word Hebrew, describing those that descended from Eber, those that descended from Abraham, the Hebrew. And so we have in this book a lesson to the Hebrews, because it was to them that God sent prophets, and it was to them that Jesus Christ spoke. Jesus Christ did not come in this world to be a minister to the Gentiles. Look at Romans chapter, keeping your finger always in the book of Hebrews. Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. And verse 8, the Apostle Paul writes here, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision. The word circumcision there is a substitute for the Hebrews. Because it were the Hebrews who circumcised their young boys, for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. There it is again. The book of Hebrews is written to Jews. And that becomes very important as you study the book. A Gentile that did not have the Old Testament would not get a thing out of the book of Hebrews. Your understanding of Hebrews is dependent upon your knowledge of the Old Testament. Melchizedek. What would Melchizedek mean to you? What would Aaron mean to you? What would Levi mean to you? What would sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats and calves, the purging and dipping of blood and sprinkling of it with hyssop, what would that mean to you? What would the giving of the law by the disposition of angels mean to you if you didn't know the Old Testament? This is a book written to Hebrews. Remember, Jesus Christ himself said he was not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus Christ was a minister to the Jews. He opened up the door of the gospel, the truth of God as it's called here, to the Gentiles through the ministry of Paul. But Jesus Christ was sent to the Hebrews. Look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 10. We're answering the question, to whom is the book written? Therefore, once we determine to whom it's written, we must gather from Scripture all that we can to have the same perspective they would have had. You say, but I thought all the Word of God is written to all Christians. It is. But if you don't have the perspective that the original readers had, you're going to miss its message. If you don't know the Old Testament, try to read the book of Hebrews 
ignoring the Old Testament, you'll be greatly confused. It's a book written to Hebrews or to those that have the Old Testament and know the religion of the Hebrews. Hebrews 13 and verse 10, the writer says to us, We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. And he goes on to describe the the particular sacrifices made on that altar. We have an altar. The writer addressing himself and his readers. We have an altar. Now, we don't have an altar like these people did here. As he goes on to describe the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. There were particular offerings that no one ate of, not even the priests but they were burned outside the camp. Jews, we have an altar. Now that could not be said to Gentiles that ever offered the bodies of beasts on an altar. This book is written to Jews. Now the Jews required special attention, and please, this sermon this morning is not wasted in understanding the book of Hebrews. It is essential to understanding Hebrews. The Jews needed a book written to them with the purpose of this book. And that is to help them leave what I'm going to call Judaism this morning. Now, the strict definition of the word Judaism is Old Testament religion corrupted, perverted, and with the learning of the Babylonians that the Jews picked up when they were in captivity in Babylon. But I'm going to use Judaism throughout this series to describe Moses' law, Moses' economy, Old Testament religion, Old Testament worship with its ceremonies, sacrifices, and Levitical priesthood. So understand that before I go any further. Judaism, strictly speaking, is a mess. It is Old Testament religion so obscure you can barely see it, but filled with the Mystery religion of the Babylonians, but that's a subject for some other time, not for this morning. All you need to do is go to the Bob Jones University Library and spend an hour reading in the Talmud, and you'll find out that Judaism has nothing, has not much to do with the Old Testament at all, as you'll read things in there about the Gentiles and about Jesus Christ and about the law of God that will utterly confound you at the corruption of the human mind. Things that are not fit to be said in divided company. About incest and pedophilia as being justified. The Jews, however, needed the book of Hebrews. You have learned many times in your own experience and the experience of others, a great part of conversion is not learning, but unlearning. You have to unlearn the old habits, the old ways of looking at things, the old perspective, the old knowledge. You need to sweep out and take in the truth. That's what conversion requires. It's a turning from and a turning to. Well, the book of Hebrews is necessary to show that What the Jews had been converted from was pitiful. They can leave it. They can forget about it. Because the whole epistle of Hebrews compares 
Christianity with Judaism. Christ with all of the objects of worship, adoration, and loyalty of the Old Testament. And it shows Christ and New Testament worship to be superior to the Old Testament worship. Therefore, since it's superior, who needs it? Is what the Apostle Paul will argue as he gets toward the end. It's going to throw it away. God's trying to throw it away. Get rid of it. Conversion. Leaving the old things, taking in the new. And you can't just present the glory of Christ like the book of Romans does in a positive way without undoing all of the learning of the Jews' religion. That's why we have the book of Hebrews. The Jews, to whom this book is written, needed to unlearn their old habits. But some might say, I didn't think the Jews believed the gospel. I thought mostly the New Testament church was made up of Gentiles. No, not the early church. What happened in the day of Pentecost? But 3,000 Jews believed the gospel. What happened a day or two later? 5,000 Jews believed the gospel. And as we continue to read, we read that the word of God multiplied greatly. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. They weren't waiting for Sunday evangelism. They were flocking in. So that, and if you'll turn to Acts chapter 21, you can read it with me. So that according to Acts chapter 21, when the Apostle Paul arrived in Jerusalem toward the end of his illustrious career, James says this to him, And when they heard it, that is what God had done by Paul among the Gentiles, this is Acts chapter 21, verse 20. When they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. Notice, there has already been a great persecution. Remember Acts chapter 8? It said there arose a great persecution against those Jews that believed in Jerusalem so that they were all scattered abroad. And yet, conversions continue to take place so that when Paul arrived in Jerusalem, they could say to him, see how many thousands of Jews there are which believe. But we also need to notice that other description of those Jews. And they are all very zealous of the law. The reason we read Psalm 105 this morning to begin our service was to remind ourselves that these Jews had nationalistic pride in the statutes and law of God. They had the true worship of God. They had God's ordinances. They had God's priesthood. They had God's leaders, God's prophets. They had God's city. They had God's temple. Think of all the advantages those Jews had. They had the worship of God. It was not like converting a man who worshipped a tree or who worshipped an altar that said, to the unknown God. These people had the true worship of God. Therefore, when Christianity came, they considered it an addition to their religion, a further revelation. They weren't ready to shuck the law. Can you see that? Wouldn't you have felt the same way? I mean, wouldn't you have gloried in Moses and the law of God, which was read every Sabbath day in your hearing? where you could hear the books of the law of God read, and the great prophecies, 
and the Psalms. You had the temple. There was a lamb sacrificed every morning and every evening. The Levitical priesthood, God had ordained those priests. You remembered that Aaron's rod had budded before all the other tribes of Israel. You, They had the Ark of the Covenant and so forth. And all the heritage of those Jews, and they were very zealous of it, even after conversion. That's why in Acts chapter 21, the elders of that church, being very political and very wise, had the Apostle Paul go into the temple and take a vow upon himself in order to show all the believing Jews that he wasn't totally condemning everything to do with Old Testament worship. But yet, those Jews, having that love for the law of God and that love for the Old Testament divine service, needed to be shown that there was a superiority in Christ so as not to be drawn back into that to the exclusion of Christ. And weren't there some that did that? How about Acts chapter 15? where Pharisee, some Pharisees that believed came down from Jerusalem saying that you had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. That was an error. How do you preach against that error but by showing all that old stuff is gone and we have something a whole lot better and that is the book of Hebrews. Those Jews needed that. Hopefully you can understand they'd be in love with Old Testament worship. These were, in particular, regenerate Jews. These Jews had a heart that loved God. Don't you think they would have a love for the fact that their fathers had been blessed with the worship of God and His divine service? Now, the initial crowd that received this letter was the crowd in Judea. The Jews in Jerusalem and the Jews in Judea. We can establish that by looking at chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, where the writer tells us that God hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. And to whom, or should I say to what Jews, did Jesus Christ speak? He did not speak to the Jews in Spain. He did not speak to the Jews in Illyricum. He did not speak to the Jews in Athens. He spoke to the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea, because that's where Jesus Christ made his three-and-a-half-year ministry. We can see that in chapter 1 and verse 2. Looking at chapter 2, we can see in verse 3, that we ought not to neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Again, where did the apostles begin their ministry of signs and wonders confirming the word of Jesus? But in Jerusalem and in Judea. God had told them that was the order. Ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and then unto the uttermost parts of the earth. But it began in Judea. Look at Hebrews chapter 5. More evidence that these were the early Jews converted in Jerusalem. 
The Apostle Paul expects a great deal from them. He says in verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 5, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. These Jews, still so much in love with the law of Moses, were babes. They hadn't left the carnal, elementary, beggarly elements of Old Testament worship. And Paul here is saying, what's taking you so long? You ought to be teachers. I shouldn't have to go through all this. It's a force of argument. I mean, if you were called a baby for not understanding something, would you apply yourself a little more diligently to understand it? Sure you would. We often use that, don't we? to appeal to people to consider what we are saying. These people obviously have been converted for some time because Paul said you ought to be teachers. They're not brand new saints. Looking at Hebrews chapter 10, we can read more about these that to whom Paul was writing. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32. But call to remembrance the former days, in which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. And he goes on to describe that great fight of affliction. If you read the book of Acts, you'll read where the persecution of the, Jew, the, the believing Jews began. It began in Jerusalem, and Saul of Tarsus was no small player in that persecution. The book of Hebrews is written to converted Hebrews. It's written to those who have already been converted, but who need further conversion from Old Testament worship. And it was primarily directed to those Hebrews in Jerusalem. Because we see in Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13, as Paul begins to close up the book, in verse 7 and verse 17, and verse 24, he makes repeated attempts to exhort these Jews to submit to their pastors. If there's one thing we can know from the Bible about Paul, he was primarily the apostle to the Gentiles. And when he arrived in Jerusalem, he took special pains to make sure that James and John and Peter, who were the pillars of the Jewish church in Jerusalem held that position and that Paul was subordinate to them. And we see in Hebrews 13 this continual reminding of them to submit to their pastors. No other emphasis like this in any other epistle. But if you go read Galatians chapter 2, where Paul takes pains to make sure he is subordinate to the others at Jerusalem, you'll understand why. And in light of verse 19, or verses 18 and 19, when he says, Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. But I beseech you the rather to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Paul here is praying that they would pray for him for this reason, that he might be restored to them the sooner. Guess where Paul was when he was taken captive and shipped off to Rome? 
What Jewish church was he with? But the church that was at Jerusalem. And he's praying for restoration because it was from them that he had been taken captive. Remember, he was in the temple with them with a vow on it, with a vow and offering a sacrifice when he was taken captive by the unbelieving Jews. Let's look now at who wrote the book of Hebrews. You have a heading over your, in your Bibles that tells us the epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Hebrews. We don't need to rely on that. We can prove it from the Bible itself. Whether Paul wrote it or not is not all that important. It does carry some weight because there was no man more fit to write to the Hebrews than was Paul, even though he was an apostle to the Gentiles. If you were to look up a, if you were to go get the New International Version or some of the other modern versions, you would find that this heading over the book of Hebrews has been taken away because they deny that Paul wrote this book. And I love to see the Word of God prove that Paul did write this book. The first proof, and I hope you'll pay attention to these, you may stand in need of them this evening. The first proof that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews is found in 2 Peter, where Peter tells us Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. This is the first and greatest proof that Paul wrote it. First, that's Second Peter. Did I say first? I meant Second Peter chapter 3. I want to read verses 15 and 16. Peter writes, And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. In verse 15, Peter tells us, Paul has written unto us. Who did Peter write to in First and Second Peter? Well, if we go to First Peter 1, 1, we read this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He is writing to Jews, scattered Jews. Peter was a minister to the circumcision. Peter is performing his job here. He's writing to the Jews. And the book of Hebrews is addressed to the Jews. And in 2 Peter 3.15, Peter says, Paul has written unto us, the Jews. Okay? Since Peter tells us Paul has written unto the Jews, which book or books did he write to the Jews? There is no other New Testament epistle written by Paul addressed to Jews. They're addressed to Gentiles, Gentile converts. Here is the primary proof that Hebrews was written by Paul because Peter tells us it was written by Paul because he tells us that there better be some scripture we can find addressed to Jews that Paul wrote. Second of all, the scripture that Paul wrote to the Jews has some things in it hard to be understood. And if you go to Hebrews chapter 5, Paul says, 
speaking of Jesus Christ, of whom we have many things to say, but ye are dull of hearing, and they're hard to be understood. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Not only that, what is the context of 2 Peter chapter 3, but the second coming of Jesus Christ? And in verse 16, Peter tells us, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things. That is, an exhortation to faithfulness, because Christ was about to return. That's what 2 Peter chapter 3 is all about. And if you go look at Hebrews with me, chapter, let's try chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, look at verse 25, Hebrews 10, 25, where Paul writes, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. The day approaching of Christ's coming, we need to be prepared for it, so we ought to be doing more and more. Same thought that Peter was making in Second Peter chapter 3 when he said Paul wrote about the same things. Look at verses 36 and 37 of the same chapter. Paul writes, For ye have need of patience, that, after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise, the very thing Peter's talking about, in 2 Peter 3, the promise of his coming. Verse 37, For yet a little while, and he that shall come, will come, and will not tarry. So there we have it from 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Peter tells us. Paul wrote the epistle to the Hebrews, because there is no other epistle Paul wrote to Jews. And he calls it Scripture. So you can't cop out by saying, well, maybe Paul wrote something to the Jews, that wasn't included in the Bible, because it's called Scripture, and what we have here is Scripture. Second argument that Hebrews was written by Paul is found over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, isn't it amazing how we have to study here a little and there a little? They deny that Paul wrote the book because it doesn't open with the word Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes scattered abroad, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the poor ignorant souls, because it doesn't say Paul, assume that it must not be Paul. And they forget 2 Thessalonians 3, 17 and 18. The apostle says here, the salutation of Paul with mine own hand. Why does he have to say that? See, Paul couldn't write letters. Go read Romans chapter 16. Tertius wrote the epistle of Paul. Whether Paul was totally blind, partially blind, didn't have fingers on his right hand, we're not sure. But he didn't write his epistles. Others wrote them for them, and if you'll read the Word of God carefully, you'll see their names. Timothy wrote several, and the, the Scriptures will tell us. But what Paul would do just as you would do, or just as secretaries do to this day, when they write a letter for their boss, what do they do when they're done? They walk in and give it to their boss for him to sign the salutation to prove that it's from him. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand. Now, the rest of it wasn't. 
but the salutation was Paul's own hand. And what would Paul put? Well, he tells us which is the token in every epistle. So I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. If you got a letter from Paul at the bottom, it would say the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And that was the end. That was Paul's token. That was Paul's salutation that he would scrawl out in his own hand. Now you can go read Romans and look at chapter 16. He does it twice there. You can go to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and every epistle of Paul, and you will find the grace of our Lord be with you, the grace of Christ be with you all, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. That token is always there. Now if you go to the epistles of James, Peter, John, you'll never find that statement. It is a distinctive token of Paul's epistles. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 13. What do you think we're going to find? Children, you can understand that, can't you? That when Paul wrote a book, he signed it in his own handwriting, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ or something to that effect be with you all. And we can know that Paul wrote it. We come to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 25. Grace be with you all. There's Paul's token. Go compare that to the other 13 epistles penned by his name, and that's just what you'll have in certain places. In abbreviated form, but nonetheless, grace be to you all. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Staying there at Hebrews 13, let's see if we can't resurrect some more information. Hebrews chapter 13, we read in verse 23, Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. Timothy was with Paul, and Paul calls him brother. No one given to us as far as scriptural evidence was ever the brother of Timothy like Paul. Timothy was always with Paul. Paul was sending him here, bringing him back. Sending him there, bringing him back. Timothy was Paul's son in the ministry. He tells us in Philippians chapter 2, he labored with me as a son with the father in the ministry. He calls Timothy his fellow laborer. They were a team. And so when we have a reference of to Timothy here, we're not surprised because we already know the book was written by Paul. And a C reference to Timothy, it just confirms our faith against all the scribes and disputers of our religious world that Paul did write the book of Hebrews. Look at verse 24. Salute all them that have the rule over you and all the saints. They of Italy salute you. Now if the author of the book, the writer, let's get that straight, the writer of the book of Hebrews says they of Italy salute you, where is the writer of the book of Hebrews? In Italy. Now, do we know that Paul was ever in Italy? He sailed there. He had a rough time getting there, according to Acts chapters 27 and 28. But he did get there. And he lived in Rome in his own hired house for a couple of years, and he was in prison for part of that time. We're not surprised because he wrote another church, didn't he? That other church is found in Philippians chapter 4, where he said, They of Caesar's household greet you. Remember, he had started a church there in Rome. He writes to the Philippians and tells them, they of Caesar's household greet you also. 
Here he says, they of Italy salute you. The church that was in Italy, that was in Rome, salutes you. More confirmation that Paul wrote the book. Look at chapters 10, chapter 10 and verse 34. Hebrews 10, 34, For ye had compassion of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. These people had supported the writer of this book while he was in bonds. Does that agree with the Apostle Paul? Indeed. Indeed, the Apostle Paul was the writer of the book of Hebrews. Now, I could give you this morning a number of comparisons where phrases, clauses, sentences out of the book of Hebrews match up with phrases, clauses, and sentences out of Paul's other epistles, and you can see that Paul's hand is in the book of Hebrews. You say, but now wait a minute, I thought God the Holy Spirit wrote Scripture. And you shouldn't be able to see writer characteristics in the books of the Bible. If I scratched out the word Ecclesiastes from the book of Ecclesiastes and you read the book of Proverbs and you knew that Solomon had written Proverbs, would you know who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? Does it sound like Moses? Does it sound like Habakkuk? Does it sound like Luke? Does Luke sound like John? No, they're different. They're different. God used his writers. God prepared writers to write Scripture. I mean, wouldn't you want Solomon to write the book of Ecclesiastes or would you want Peter to write it? Would you want Peter, a dumb, unlearned, untrained, ignorant fisherman, to write a book on the pursuit of profitability in this world? Or would you want Solomon, the world's wisest man, who had all the capital, looks, riches, opportunity at his disposal to find some profitable pursuit for man? Who would you want to write it? But Solomon, and so it is with God, he has chosen writers specially prepared because God has used means in his ministry. Not all ministers are equal for all situations. God prepares ministers for specific situations. Just like he prepared Solomon for his specific ministry, he prepared Paul for his. And that brings us to the point that Paul was easily the most qualified of all the writers that God could have chosen from the New Testament saints to write the book of Hebrews. Because who knew the religion of the Jews better than Paul? Look just briefly with me. Oh, there are so many references even on this point. Let's look at... Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. You would not want someone writing the book of Hebrews who didn't know the law of Moses well, who didn't know the Levitical priesthood well, who didn't know the ordinances of, of Jewish divine service well. But Paul knew all these things. Acts 26. Paul says in verse 2, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews. He was happy for this reason to have Agrippa as his audience, especially because I know thee to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. That's because Paul knew all those things, and he was glad Agrippa knew them. 
Wherefore I beseech thee to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning. Listen, I used to be their colleague from the beginning. We went to school together. We went to catechism together. They've known me if they, if they would testify. Paul here says that after the most straightest, now that's a pretty conservative religion, when Paul says most straightest, usually in English you only need the superlative once, and that's straightest, but the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. This is one example of ten that could be raised where Paul appeals to the fact that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Philippians chapter 3. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Trained up at the feet of Gamaliel. Acts chapter 22. He was a man that knew the Jewish religion. And Galatians chapter 2 tells us he was exceeding zealous in the tradition of the fathers. The very thing that Paul is now going to write in the book of Hebrews to overthrow, he was exceeding zealous of and even persecuted those who believed any other way about the law of Moses. No one was more fit to write Hebrews than Paul. Someone will say, well, if Paul wrote it, why didn't he start out the epistle like he did his other epistles? It shows an ignorant man that would ask the question. Why didn't Paul stick the word Paul in as the first word like he does all of his other epistles? There was one man in this world that borderline Jews who were about to apostatize back to the Jews' religion did not like. Guess who it was? Paul. If he would have started out this epistle with the word Paul, they would have read one word and closed it. Paul. Can I prove that? Look at Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. Oh, there's so much wisdom in the Word of God if he would just read the Word of God. He wouldn't have dared stick his name up there. No one would have, most of the Jews would not have read it. Notice where the proofs of his authorship are in the book of Hebrews all contained in the last five verses. As you get to the end, oh, this is another epistle from Paul. But you've already read all of his arguments, and they're powerful. By the time you get done, you couldn't apostatize back to Judaism if you had a sincere heart. Acts chapter 21. Let's go back. We've read verse 20 already. This is when Paul gets to Jerusalem, and the elders and pastors come together. On verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it, therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Those elders were very wise, and they knew that there was a reputation Paul had that he was preaching against the law of Moses to an extreme because he had already had a reputation that Paul was going around now 
trying to overthrow Moses to avoid that prejudice from distorting the perception of the reader. It doesn't start out with Paul, because Jews wouldn't have accepted it from Paul. But those Jews that already loved Paul, and the Jews that loved Paul didn't need the book of Hebrews. It was the Jews that were borderline, that were still in love with the law of Moses, that needed the book of Hebrews, so the word Paul is not there. Remember, Paul was primarily the apostle to the Gentiles, and the Jews knew that, because he told them that. When he came to the church of Jerusalem in Galatians chapter 2, they publicly acknowledged Peter, James, and John were to the circumcision, and Paul was to the uncircumcision. Therefore, you didn't want an apostle to the Gentiles writing to Jews until they got to the end and the argument had been won. Are you going to doubt the author of 1 John because it doesn't start out John? It starts out that which was in the beginning, which we have heard, and so forth. No, we believe that Paul wrote the epistle to the Hebrews and he was the fittest writer for that purpose and God used the means of his prior training. How many times have I met people who were converted later in life? And they say to me, Oh, if I only had known the truth earlier. If only I had heard these things when I was a child. If only I had heard them when I was a teenager. I say that God has a greater purpose in your conversion later in life than he would have had in a conversion earlier in life. And your prior experiences will work to your advantage. because they worked to Paul's. Thank God Paul was well-trained in the Jews' religion, because as you study Hebrews, you can see it coming through on the pages. He knew it well. And God used that knowledge. Why did Paul write the book of Hebrews? We've basically answered that question. The book of Hebrews can be summarized this way. It proves the superiority of Christianity over Judaism. The book of Hebrews proves the superiority of Christianity over Judaism. That is why Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. The treatment of that subject in Hebrews is far more systematic. I mean, it's just very logical. Precept upon precept, point and argument upon point and argument to establish that superiority. Paul had to write this book because of the great number of Jewish converts that were in the early church. Remembering the divine origin of their religion, the divine origin of their law, their priesthood, their sacrifices, their temple, their city, all granted by God, a book needed to be written that systematically, carefully, and in great detail overthrows all of those things. The book of Hebrews does that proving from every angle the superiority of Christ to anything the Jews could boast of. When a Jew obeyed the Lord Jesus Christ, what happened to them relative to the synagogues and the temple? They were cast out. Can you imagine the conflict in their minds? The temple is the place where God is worshipped. Jerusalem is the city where God is worshipped. The Levites that were offering sacrifices, they are God's priests. 
in order to follow Jesus Christ, I have to give up the religion of God. Do you understand that dilemma? What if you've been raised from a child hearing all about Moses and the Levites and the priests and the sacrifices and the ordinances, the ritual, the temple? You were taken there once a year and saw the splendor of that temple. As, a, as an adult, you'd be overwhelmed with the glory of that thing. And to follow Christ, even if he had been raised from the dead, meant you had to give up all of these things from your tradition. Hard to do. Paul had to write the book of Hebrews to show them all those things are nothing when put in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is far superior to all of them. And that is why Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. We're dealing with the context of the book of Hebrews. Remember, there's six words that start with W that you need to answer when you deal with any context. To whom, from whom, why, what, when, and where. We've already answered to whom the book was written. We've answered who wrote the book. Now we're answering why he wrote the book. To show the superiority of following that man, Jesus Christ, even though it meant losing everything that you believed had been appointed by God, and which they believed, rightly so, had been appointed by God. The book of Hebrews was written to overthrow the error of ritualism. You want a book that overthrows Catholicism? No better book than the book of Hebrews. No better book than the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was written to overthrow the error of legalism. Nitpicking adherence to the laws of Moses, to the customs of Moses, the days of Moses, the ceremonial law. The book of Hebrews does it. We've all heard of the Reformation, haven't we? With a capital R, that means it's a proper noun. Describing that period of time between approximately 1500 and 1700, the Reformation. Well, there was a Reformation, but it wasn't the Reformation that God places his emphasis upon. If you look in Hebrews chapter 9, we can see that the Great Reformation, God's Reformation, the true Reformation, took place between 30 A.D. and 70 A.D. The 40 years of Reformation. We read in Hebrews 9.10, speaking of all the customs and rituals of the Jewish religion, which stood only in, in meats and drinks, and divers' washings, and carnal ordinances, imposed on them until the time of Reformation. And I don't have time this morning to run all the verses in the Bible about this time of Reformation. But we read in Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets, Old Testament religion, were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and all men press into it. John and Jesus Christ were the beginning of the time of Reformation, why they came on the scene preaching a whole new form of religion. Jesus said to that woman of Samaria, they're not going to be worshiping the truth in Jerusalem. The truth will be worshipped by those who worship God in spirit and in truth. Religion was changing from that formal, outward, sensual form of worship that took place at a certain place, at a certain time, with carnal ordinances it was changing to religion of the soul. You have to worship God in spirit and in truth. The time of Reformation. 
and Paul here is writing toward the end of that time, just before Jesus Christ would come again in judgment, which he did in 70 A.D., and obliterate that old form of religion. But Paul is preparing those Jews for the fact by convincing them mentally that they ought not to realize any great loss when the temple is destroyed. When the city is destroyed, when the priests no longer offer sacrifices, it's all done away. But he's convincing them mentally before it ever takes place. This is the time of Reformation. The book of Hebrews is the manual of Reformation, of what took place. Without this book of Hebrews, you'd never understand the law of Moses. What in the world was the book of Leviticus written for without the book of Hebrews? With this book, the apostle warns of affliction and exhorts them to perseverance. There's no book in the Bible that places greater emphasis on perseverance and continuing steadfast in the faith than does the book of Hebrews. The what of Hebrews identifies its theme, which is the superiority of Christianity to Judaism, and how it goes about to prove that point. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. The first three verses, Jesus Christ is superior to the prophets. God ha hath spoken unto us by his Son. In the time past, he spoke by his prophets. Sundry times and in divers manners. An imperfect revelation. Here a little, there a little. No prophet had much. They'd give a little bit. Then you'd have to wait for the next prophet. Sundry times, different times, various manners. Sometimes by visions, sometimes dreams, sometimes angels, sometimes a hand on a wall, whatever the case was, an imperfect revelation. Jesus Christ is superior because he spoke directly the complete revelation of Jesus Christ. How does Paul prove his point? Chapter 1, the first three verses, Jesus is superior to the prophets. Verse 4, through the end of chapter 2, Jesus is superior to the angels. That's his argument. Chapter two, chapter 1 and verse 4, through the end of chapter 2, Jesus is superior to the angels. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 19, Jesus is superior to Moses. This is precious. If you can see this overall outline of the book, how that these Jews trusted in the prophets. They trusted in the angels. I mean, to what other nation did God send angels? But to the nation of the Jews. What nation had a man like Moses? He's superior to the prophets. He's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. I mean, I love it, the way it says it about Moses in chapter 3. He quotes from Numbers chapter 12 and verse 17, where God said of Moses, He was faithful in all my house. Jesus Christ built the house, is what the apostle argues. I mean, do you want to compare those two? The servant who was faithful in a house and the son who built the house? Chapter 4, Jesus is superior to Joshua because Joshua did not give the people of Israel rest. Remember, Joshua was the great hero of Israel that brought them into the land of Canaan and gave them rest after a, after a five-year battle. 
But they didn't truly receive the rest of God like Jesus Christ gives. There remains, therefore, a rest to the people of God is the argument of chapter 4. Beginning at chapter 4, verse 14, 4, 14, and running all the way through chapter 7, 18, Jesus is superior to Aaron and Melchizedek. He is superior to the Levitical priesthood. Paul is just logically tearing down their whole religion as it stood under Moses. Beginning at chapter 7 and verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect, and running through chapter 10, the end of chapter 10, he proves that Jesus Christ and the new covenant is better than the law of Moses. The new covenant, the gospel, the new covenant is better than the old covenant is what he proves. Beginning with chapter 11 and running through Hebrews chapter 12, Jesus Christ is superior to all the Old Testament saints. Remember Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. He mentions Enoch. He mentions Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, David, Samuel, all of them. And he concludes by saying that Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. They didn't do anything but what Jesus Christ was the author and finisher of it. Jesus is superior to all the Old Testament saints. Now consider that kind of arguing. He takes everything the Jews would put their hope in and tears it down, proving that Jesus Christ is superior to it. Look at Hebrews 1.4. I want you to pick up a word, a comparative word, Hebrews chapter 1, to see this point. Being made so much, verse 4, Hebrews 1.4, being made so much better. That is a word you will read throughout the book of Hebrews because it's a book of arguing. Christ, the gospel, the New Testament, the heavenly Jerusalem is better than Moses, the law, the Levitical priesthood, the temple, the sacrifices, the ordinances. So we find the word better throughout this book. Look at chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did. Verse 22. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Can you appreciate Paul, what he's doing in this book? He's taking these poor Jews who rightly so had a great deal of allegiance to Old Testament worship. And he's teaching, there's something better. Yes, that was good. Yes, God did speak to our fathers by the prophets, but there's something better. And he uses the word better over and over again. I have about ten references you can look up at your own pleasure. He uses the word great to distinguish Christ from pitiful things under the Old Testament. The Jews put so much hope and trust in their priests. Is it any wonder that the book of Hebrews is the book that sets forth Jesus Christ as our great high priest? Because they understood they needed a priest. They understood that men couldn't deal with God. They knew there had to be a mediator more than Gentiles understand that. Because every year they saw that one man go behind that veil and offer up that blood to God. And they knew that if he went in there twice, 
in one year he was going to die, and they knew that if any other man tried to go in there, he was going to die. They knew that there had to be a mediator. So what do we find in the book of Hebrews? Jesus being set forth as the great mediator and high priest. How does Paul prove his point? He proves it in a masterly way. Knowing that the Jews had all of their hope in an earthly inheritance, they had their hope in an earthly temple, they worshipped in an earthly temple, they had an earthly priesthood, is it any wonder that we read about heavenly things over and over in the book of Hebrews? A heavenly Jerusalem and other heavenly things that we could look at. The book of Hebrews is a book that takes that Old Testament and explains it to the Jews. They didn't know what they had the laws of the Levitical priesthood for until Paul wrote Hebrews. It explains figures, types, shadows, examples, and patterns. And you ought to look up those five words and see how many times they occur in the book of Hebrews. Figures, shadows, examples, and patterns. I'm not going to, I'll turn you to one or two just for you to see the point. Look at Hebrews 8 and verse 5. This is a book that explains types and shadows. If a minister is ever justified in preaching types and shadows, it's when he preaches the book of Hebrews. To do it elsewhere is to run into the danger of human imagination. Hebrews 8.5 Speaking of the Levitical priesthood and their sacrifices, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. Notice the word heavenly, comparing earthly things with heavenly things, setting a great distance between the Jews' religion and Christianity. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou maketh make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. There in one verse we have the word example, shadow, and pattern. And if you read the book of Hebrews, you'll see these words over and over. This is a book that explains the Old Testament because it's proving the superiority of Christ and New Testament worship to the Old Testament form of worship. Which also reminds us that we better know something about the Old Testament before we try to understand the book of Hebrews because we'll be making frequent reference to it. Notice the doctrinal practical division in the book, which also proves that Paul was the author because Paul was a master at it, wasn't he? Romans chapter 11, verse 36 ends with amen. Chapter 12 and verse 1 takes up with therefore. Here's what you want to do with that information. Ephesians chapter 3 ends with amen. Chapter 4 takes up with therefore. Here's how you ought to walk. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19, and I've preached this to you before, is the great dividing line of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 10 and verse 18 tells us, Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. That basically undoes the Jews' religion. It was a Jew of sac- it was a religion of sacrifice for sin. Paul has spent nine and a half chapters proving there is no more sacrifice because Christ made the perfect and permanent sacrifice. There is no more sacrifice to make. Then verse 19, he takes up the practical exhortation that he emphasizes to the end of the book. Having 
Therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, he goes on to say in verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Given that this Old Testament form of worship and all the ritual that you had to spend your effort in is done away, let us now spend our effort in holding fast our professions. And these Jews had a tremendous amount of persecution aimed against them, psychologically and physically, if you can appreciate that at all. And therefore, he brings to bear this exhortation to practical religion. How does Paul go about strengthening the faith of these Jewish Christians? But by warning them of apostasy and the dangers of it and exhorting them to faithfulness. No other book in the Bible exhorts us to continue in the faith like the book of Hebrews does. I'd have to preach the book of Hebrews to prove the point, but look at Hebrews chapter 3. And I love exhortation. When I set myself on a limb to say that this is the best book in the Bible, and I've defined that for you already in some terms, you better have some exhortation, because you know the emphasis we make on exhortation. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at 6. But Christ as a son over his own house. Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing? That's an interesting statement. I'd never noticed that before. That agrees with Deuteronomy 28:47, doesn't it? That when you serve God, you better serve him with joy and gladness of heart, or he won't accept proper worship. If we hold fast the confidence, that's faith, and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Look at those words there. You better hold it firm. You better be rejoicing in it. You better keep your confidence to the end. There is to be no wavering. And till down to the end of the chapter, he teaches the same thing. Look at verse 14. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Notice he's telling these Jews, you waver. You go back to Judaism, there's no evidence you're one of Christ's. If, if continual warnings about departing from the living God, as verse 12 tells us, we all are prone to do. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Brethren, we don't want to come short of God's promise for rest. We want to realize his promise. As a child, I remember hearing about the 12 spies coming back. Ten spies saying they couldn't take the land of Canaan. Two saying they could. And wishing, oh, I wish I'd been there. I'd have changed the odds from nine to three anyway. If I'd have been among those 12 spies. We have such an opportunity. And that's to take the rest of the New Testament that God has promised us by obeying this book. But it is a book filled with exhortation. And I'm going to be going after you and me in this book, while we learn of Christ, we learn our duty of continuing. A burst of glory proves nothing. Firecrackers have a burst of glory. And of how much substance is a firecracker? 
the 4th of July is one of the best evidences of continuing. You go spend 50 bucks, and it's gone so fast you don't know where it went. There's no substance, but it sure did have a blaze, didn't it? And all the Lord talks about seed that is sown, that springs up with joy, then withers away. No evidence of being in Christ's house. This is a book that will build our faith to hang in there with confidence and joy firm to the end. I'm looking forward to this book. Even if this morning all I get to do, and I was very disappointed, all I get to do is give you an outline, an overview of it. I want you to feel like you're receiving the book of Hebrews when it was first written to those Jewish Christians in 60 A.D., sometime before the destruction of Jerusalem. I want you to feel like this book was written to you. I want you to pretend you were a Jew at that time. And you can see the force of Paul's argument convincing them to have faith in Jesus Christ against all of that formal religion. Turn your back on that glorious temple, the altar, the priests, and walk away to follow Jesus Christ. And while you're walking, you're being accused by the Jews, you know they're God's people, by the priests, you know they're God's priests, of being heretics. And as you leave, your lot in life doesn't get better, but you suffer great persecution for a little man named Jesus that made no great splash on the Jewish scene, and they crucified him. Ah, there's so much in the way of exhortation. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed. Do those those words mean something more to you right now than they would have an hour ago? Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed. We Jews ought to give the more earnest heed to what Jesus Christ said. Because remember, he's in the middle of his argument here. Jesus is better than angels. Angels gave the Ten Commandments. The law was given by the disposition of angels. Jesus Christ revealed the gospel. Therefore, we ought to give the more, more, better, great, superior, the preeminence of Christ and the gospel that we have, even though we're meeting in this glorious temple called the boardroom of the Holiday Inn. It exhorts us to great faith. There's so many more examples I'd like to give, but we're going to get to them before we finish this. How about Hebrews chapter 11? Haven't we all loved Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, where all those men are described in their great deeds done by faith, through faith, by faith? We read about them. How does that fit into the argument? But remember that the Jews had a religion based on outward ceremony that could be seen with the eye. If there was ever a group of people that had a religion based on sight, it was the Jews' religion. And what does Hebrews chapter 11 teach? But faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Do you see the power of the apostle in his argument here? And he lists all those men and proves that if you really look at their lives, they weren't walking by sight like you Jews are trying to walk. They walked by faith even back then. And Christ is the true example of faith. 
Hebrews chapter 11 fits in so that you can see that our lives are a life of walking by faith and not by sight. We don't have a religion you can see. There is no temple or cathedral we walk into where we're just in awe at the 120-foot-high ceiling and the stained-glass windows and all the ornate decoration that creates in our flesh an idea of religion. We walk by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 11 fits right in. Does the Apostle Paul in the book of Hebrews have confidence in the Word of God and the inspiration of God's Word? Remember, he's writing to Jews. Those Jews love the Old Testament Scriptures. Does Paul exalt the Old Testament Scriptures in the book of Hebrews? Look at the arguments he bases on single words. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 8. Hebrews 2 and verse 8. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. He's quoting from the Old Testament, where the Old Testament said that God made man lower than the angels, but put all things under man's feet. He's arguing from the word all here. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Where is he getting that argument from? The definition of the word all. If all things are under the feet of man, there is nothing that's not under his feet. See the argument? From the word all. But now we see not yet all things put under him. We don't see all things under the feet of man. But we see Jesus. I love it! Jesus Christ, we see Jesus. No, in man you don't see the fulfillment of that, but in Jesus you do see it. But he argues from the word all. Look at verse 11, I believe it is. Verse 11. For both he that sanctifieth, that's Christ, and they who are sanctified, that's the saints, are all of one. They have the same nature. How do you know that, Paul? For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He argues from the word brethren. Since the Old Testament used the word brother, then Jesus Christ and the saints must be of the same nature. Because when you have a brother, isn't he of the same nature with you? Otherwise, he wouldn't be your brother. Oh, there are so, there's so many here. Does he argue from the word today in Hebrews 3 and 4? Today. While it is called today. Now that's not from the Old Testament. That's Paul using the Old Testament. The Old Testament simply says, today, if you will hear his voice. So Paul takes that word today and uses it about ten times. Today if you will hear his voice, while it is called today. Boy, Paul sets the Old Testament up as high as he can in how he uses its words. There are so many. The word rest, the word house. House in chapter 3, rest in chapter 4. But look at chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. The Jews would just love an exposition like this of the Old Testament. Hebrews 8.13 In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. The very fact that in Jeremiah 31, God said, I will make a new covenant. Paul argues from the little word new, N-E-W. 
if God's going to make a new covenant, that must mean the old covenant you Jews are in love with is old and ought to vanish away so that we can take what's new, arguing from the word new. Come over to Hebrews chapter 12, where Paul quotes from the book of Haggai. Hebrews chapter 12, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he, verse 26, Hebrews 12, 26, I'm sorry. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. If you were a Jew, do you see the argument? Yet once more I shake. God is saying all the Old Testament religion can be shook up because they're things that are made. They're carnal. They're physical elements. They can just all fall away. I shake it one more time because after I shake and the Old Testament is shaken away, the New Testament is here to remain. But he argues from the words, yet once more. Now, if you love the Old Testament, you'd love Paul. But you didn't know it was Paul yet. You just knew that whoever was writing this epistle to the Hebrews loved the Old Testament scriptures and was using them to prove his points. That is the what of Hebrews. Oh, there's so much more. Whenever he, whenever he appeals to the Hebrew scriptures, he says, he saith, God saith, as the Holy Ghost saith making the words of Scripture the very words from God's mouth. That's the what of Hebrews. How Paul goes about to prove his point and to accomplish his purpose. His purpose? Christianity is superior to Judaism. How does he do it? All the ways I've just mentioned in a glorious fashion. When was it written? It was written before the destruction of Jerusalem. We know that because the temple was still standing, because Paul said, we have an altar. Because he was still worried about the Jews falling back to that form of worship. 71 A.D., there was no worry. They couldn't have fallen back on that worship if they wanted to. The Levites that were left, which were very few, were in the salt mines in Egypt. 90,000 delivered from that city, where 1.1 million died. And they were taken captive to work in the mines for the Romans. It was written before the destruction of Jerusalem. Very possibly written while Paul dwelled in his hired house for two years in the city of Rome. Acts chapter 28, 30 and 31. The reason I say that is because in Hebrews 10, 24, he said, Ye had compassion of me and my bonds. Paul was freed up to live in his own hired house. Where was it written? Where did Paul write it? He wrote it in Hebrew. He wrote it in Italy. And where were those that were first addressed? They were in Jew, in, in Jerusalem and in Judea and then to all the scattered remnants of Jews because this was an epistle to all the Hebrews that they might know they had made a wise choice in following Jesus Christ even though it meant leaving God's religion of the Old Testament. It is the book of Reformation, reforming of God's worship. And though they were going to endure great affliction, though they were enduring persecution, though God's ministers, the priests, were calling them heretics, though they were worshiping in the woods, in upper rooms, 
Though they had left the temple, the altar, the city, the synagogues, they knew they had the truth because they had a better form of religion. They were following Jesus Christ who was not a simply a prophet of God, who was not simply the great apostle of our faith, Hebrews 3.1, nor was he just a priest. He was God and the Son of God. And they had made a most wise choice, and he exhorts them to continue in the greatest religion the world has ever seen, including a comparison with the Old Testament religion. New Testament, Gospel, Jesus Christ, Christianity. May God bless us to love the book of Hebrews, to look forward to its study, to consider these things. I'll have this outline maybe for you this evening for you to review it this week as I hope you will read the book of Hebrews to prepare for the coming weeks as we go through Paul's arguments setting forth the glory of Christ. If you love Jesus Christ, you'll love this series. If you have given any provision for the flesh or given any place to the devil, this is one series you will not appreciate because it exalts Jesus Christ. And if there's one thing the devil wants to shut down its glory given to Jesus Christ. And I hope that we all can look forward to this series. A beautiful book, Jesus Christ is preeminent over all things, even the things that God has ordained in his worship in times past.